Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, September 5th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi, everyone. Later, we'll have our latest Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Rachel Bluth. It's about a guy who did all the right homework before an elective surgery and still got bills for more than he expected. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So it has been a couple of weeks since we did news. I hope everyone had a restful August. I saw some of your vacation pictures on social media. Um, and now it's about to get really busy on the health policy beat. I thought we would first try to catch up on some of the things we all might have missed last month. Let us start with the presidential campaign, where health is still a pretty big thing. So President Trump has been telling us for some months now that he will soon unveil a fabulous new health plan. And we're still waiting. But a shout out here to my colleague Julie Appleby for her smart story this week on how it might be better for President Trump not to put out a plan for the Democrats to criticize unless that appeals court in New Orleans, that we also we talked about the case in Texas, decides that the ACA really is unconstitutional. So will we or won't we see a big, fabulous health plan from the president? What's your what's your best guess, Alice? I think we'll either see nothing, which is what we've seen so far, or we'll see a collection of sort of vague goals and principles, but not a rollout of a full piece of legislation that could theoretically replace the Affordable Care Act. As Julie argued, there's no political incentive to put out something. The Republican plans that were rolled out in 2017 to replace the Affordable Care Act were ripped apart, couldn't pass, (laughs) uh, completely bombed on Capitol Hill, and no one wants a repeat of that. Lawmakers, Republican lawmakers still have PTSD from back then. But but Stephanie, and I think you've written about this. I mean, what if there is no this, – this appeals court we could hear from any minute um, and they could – judging from the way the oral arguments went in July, they could say, yeah, the entire ACA is unconstitutional. So at that point, wouldn't the administration have to have something ready? Well – I think that the health plan that you're talking about, first of all, it's it's been, uh, according to my sources, it's been delayed um, because of the focus on the mental health work. So I think they're they're looking more like October. Um, I think that it it is likely to be more along the lines of principles, um, which is what we've reported. It it has they are have been working on it for some time, and it does have some specific elements to it. There has been debate within the within the White House about whether or not to release this because of concerns that it will open them up to Democratic attacks. But I do think that uh, the president is very eager to try and focus his campaign on health care and especially what um, the administration believes has been done and they want to do on lowering health care costs. They see that as their their winning platform. If, what happens if the verdict comes out is anybody's guess in terms of how specific planning is behind the scenes. I, I do think that they would likely want to turn to the idea of high-risk pools to manage um, individuals with uh, significant medical health care costs. 
Which we should point out have been tried in the past multiple times and have not worked. They've been a favorite Republican. Let's put Mm -hmm. everybody who has a pre-existing condition in a high-risk pool and we'll subsidize the high-risk pool. And it has still not been enough. Right. I think it will be very interesting to see what happens with this with the Supreme Court, which is where I do think it will wind up. I do think we'll we'll have some action on this and significant action before the election in 2020. And I think right now it's really interesting. We are not hearing a lot of talk about this lawsuit. If you listen to the Democrats Mm -hmm. on the at the debates. It's like mentioned maybe once if we're lucky. And so it's like this thing that's looming out there. And I think we are going to see it become center stage, not not now, but once we start to get some action legally, I think it's going to shift dramatically and we're going to hear a lot more talk about it. Yeah, I mean, what's clearly going to happen if they rule it unconstitutional is that it will be stayed until it gets to the Supreme Court. But then we'll have an appeals court. I mean, now we've got a lower court that said, the ACA is unconstitutional because they got rid of the tax penalty. But if we have an appeals court that says the ACA is unconstitutional because they got rid of the tax penalty, even if it doesn't, you know, if that doesn't get implemented right away, that's still going to cause a big shakeup in sort of, of the course. body and politic. Then, and then, you know, the decision by the Supreme Court, whether or not it takes it up, was likely to be known before the election. So that's going to become a big a big issue that I think we're going to hear candidates talk about. But it is sort of puzzling, I think, to a number of the Democrats I've talked with why you're not seeing this on the debate stage. It, it would be a natural attack line for Democrats against President Trump. And but, it was in 2018. Yes. It was It was huge. To their success. Exactly. Right. Um, really helped Democrats take back the House by pointing to this looming threat to the Affordable Care Act. So, Kimberly, what are you hearing yeah. for, about about the, the Trump health plan? Right. Well, one of the things that you know we've kind of seen a lot with the president is that he'll make these remarks kind of off the cuff to reporters. And uh, that kind of leaves the rest of his staff to really scramble and come up with, you know, what exactly the president is talking about. One of the things that I keep hearing repeatedly when I go to officials is, look at all the different things the president has done on health care. These are really signs of his health care plan. So they'll say things like, look at the initiative to reduce HIV transmission. Look at his initiative to um, increase organ donation. Even this week when they rolled out um, a plan to give grants to states to fight the opioid epidemic, they really framed it as being part of the president's, you know, health care plan and his vision for health care in America. And although some of these plans actually have a lot of support, they don't add up to 20 million more people getting health insurance. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, right. I and think so, I asked this question a couple of weeks ago, which is, is, are they going to just package everything that they've done or want to do and say, this is our health plan? Or is there going to be some real health plan? Yeah. Uh, the From what I've been told, a lot of large aspects of the plan are already out and it and um there are still some more goals and visions that they have but the price transparency for example um they've already taken action on so the sense is that and the kidney care initiative right i think there's a lot of frustration right now within the white house there's a feeling that the general public doesn't know enough about what they have done and there's kind of a move right now to try and publicize that more heavily i'm laughing because that's exactly what the obama administration yes said. it is i remember that every yes. president is like look we've done all this stuff and nobody cares yes and there's going to be some kind of executive order on Medicare Advantage. Yeah, that's going to be, I think, at the same time, likely as the health, um, possibly in October. I don't think a date's been set, though. But right. as you said, none of those things or even all of those things add up to what would happen if the Supreme Court struck down the Affordable Care Act and 
tens of millions of people were thrown off their insurance. But because nobody's talking about it, they right. really don't have to. Right. right. Well, meanwhile, on the other side, among the Democrats, um, Bernie Sanders this week opened a new front in the health battle teasing an upcoming proposal that would cancel an estimated $81 billion in outstanding medical debt that's been reported to credit agencies. Apparently, one of the things the plan would do is revise some of the 2005 bankruptcy law that made it more difficult to discharge medical debt in bankruptcy. But since we don't have all the details yet, I want to ask about the politics. How potent might this be as a campaign issue in a year when medical costs are obviously the biggest issue for voters? I think it could be quite a popular proposal. I do see, um, I anticipate some of the same um, fairness concerns that you're hearing in the same space when folks are talking about canceling student debt in that it penalizes people uh, who have made sacrifices and kept up on their payments and it only offers relief to people who have fallen behind on their payments. Of course, we want to help people who've fallen behind on their payments, who are drowning in debt. Um, but what about the folks who are paying off their debt on time, but and who bankrupted, basically bankrupted exactly. themselves to pay the medical debt? Exactly. And so, you know, who would qualify for this? I think will be a big argument. There are elements of it, though, that I think could gain traction, like that idea that your medical debt would not impact your credit score. I thought mm-hmm. that was that was quite interesting and could get a lot of support. There was some back and forth um, between the Sanders campaign and the Washington Post because they ran a fact checker on Mm. um, some statistics he put out saying that, you know, uh, 500,000, I think he said, people a year go bankrupt because of a medical bill. And really, when you look at the data more carefully, um, sure, there might people might have, you know, declared bankruptcy because they also had an illness along the way. Maybe they had to take time off work. But that's different from whether it's directly related to that actual medical bill that they received. And we should point out that that. One of the original studies was done by Elizabeth Warren when she was back at (laughs) Harvard. Uh, Margot Singer-Katz, our colleague, has done a lot of work on this and has explained it a few times. But I'm sure we'll be back to do it again Mm -hmm. when we actually see this plan. Yeah, I know there's no way in terms of how to pay for it that that is not – been discussed either at this point. Yeah, there seem there are an awful lot of plans out here to to give money to people basically to help them with things that are that people legitimately need help with, but yeah, with very with not very much discussion about how you would actually find the money to pay for all of these various things. I'm just I'm curious, this one sort of jumped out at me though, is a this isn't something we've really seen in the presidential campaign and it's an interesting line of argument. I'll be I'll be interested See if it comes up at the next debate. Same. And in terms of cost, you know, there there is an argument that this may be able to pay for itself in the long run because if people right. aren't putting all of their money into paying down their debt, they would be spending that money out in the economy, which you know generate <laughs> more, more tax activity, revenue, right. et cetera, et cetera. You know, maybe somebody you know is putting off buying a house. That's a really common thing. You know, uh, and. Therefore, the government would be able to get that revenue. Um, but I think it's a short, short-term short huge cost, long-term potential huge benefit. I'm curious to see whether this sort of picks up legs with some of the other Democratic candidates and even maybe in Congress. Well, also, since we last talked about the news, Planned Parenthood has officially dropped out of the Federal Family Planning Program, Title 10 of the Public Health Service Act. Uh, as did a number of other family planning groups, including a couple of states who say they cannot ethically abide by new Trump administration rules that bar abortion referrals, among other things. Alice, you've been all over this story. Thank you very much. Uh, What is the latest? Well, uh, just what you said. So uh, we could see 
even more states and organizations quitting in the days ahead. So you had a wave of entities, Planned Parenthood, some states, some other There's what, five health states clinics. now that there is no Title X provider? Um, depends on how you count them. <laughs> um, because some Planned Parenthood was the only provider, and so Planned Parenthood quitting sort of made that whole state quit. And so, um, But it is, it is a small handful. So states and organizations that wanted to stay in the program were required to submit to HHS a plan detailing how they would comply with these new rules. They're just starting to get feedback on those plans. So we could see another wave of exits if places submitted plans and then they hear back saying your plan is no good, you have to redo it. And then they could say, well, that was that that plan was, you know, what we were willing to do. So we're out. Um, so I, I think we should all stay tuned for more potential exits. But already we're seeing impact from the Planned Parenthood and other groups that have exited, um, already seeing some cutbacks in services. Um all around the country, we talked to a clinic in New Hampshire that used to have walk-in STI testing, and now you have to make an appointment, and that can be difficult for people. We talked to places that are now charging for doctor's visits and birth control that used to be free. We talked to places that used to have a mobile clinic that went around underserved areas, and they had to suspend that for now. And so, and we will likely see a lot more because right now a lot of places are relying on their reserve funding, and as that runs out you could see more service cutbacks. So this is sort of a slow-moving story that we'll just, we're going to continue hearing more and more. And later this month, we have two oral arguments in two different federal appeals courts about this. So That's right. lots was, of news ahead. That was my next question. Yes. This is still alive in the court. Yes. Yeah. In the Ninth Circuit and in the Fourth Circuit. So we're, we're And waiting. maybe in the First Circuit. They haven't said if they'll take it yet. <laughs> so so it's it, it's it's another place yes. where everybody's kind of in limbo. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But in the meantime, I mean, I'm wondering, you know, how this could end up playing as, as a political issue. I mean, I've been I've been covering efforts to kick Planned Parenthood out of the Title 10 program since I first started health reporting. Literally, it was one of the first things that happened in 1987. Um, so this has been a long standing goal. Um, but if they're I mean, now they are, at least for the moment, out mm-hmm. and as as you point out, Alice, there are places that are cutting back on services. And if, you know, people who have relied on Planned Parenthood and the family planning program, you know, suddenly can't get those services anymore, is that going to is that going to sort of bring this higher up on the political agenda? Or is this just one of so many things that are happening? I think people sort of have, you know, surprise fatigue. Well, just just like the the lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act, I've been surprised we haven't heard more about this. Um, This is going to concretely affect millions of people. Um, and But I think one part of that is the candidate who would have been best primed to speak about it, Jay Inslee, already dropped out. So he, uh, as governor of Washington State, pulled out of the program and gave lots of speeches about how the rule would you know, put a gag on providers and limit what they could say to patients and how wrong that was. And so I think... And yet he, I mean, he yes. barely talked about that to, to the extent we heard right. from Jay Inslee. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, it has gone a bit under the radar. I also think there's been... Uh, such an onslaught of curbs to abortion access and funding for Planned Parenthood that this sort of gets lost in that. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more complicated to explain. And I do think that you're going to increasingly see 
Democrats jump on reproductive health and women's health. You've seen that already with a lot of the plans that have rolled out. And I think you'll hear more discussion about that. Um, I think the big question is going to be sort of also where does Planned Parenthood go now, this whole issue of, of can it continue to be a health care provider at the same time that it's dealing with all these highly politicized issues. And having a bit of a vacuum at the top, having fired their their Which is indicative of the, yeah. of the kind of identity crisis at this point. Although we should probably point out that when we were the last time we were fighting about Planned Parenthood, it was whether they could participate in the Medicaid program. And that's where they right. get more of their money than Title X is a grant program for exclusively for family planning. It's never paid for abortion. The argument has always been, well, if they get the money to pay for family planning, they can use other money for abortion. So it's all intermingled. Who knows with the Black right. Grant ideas. Yeah. Like but, Tennessee and Alaska, but, could there be other ways to try and chisel mm-hmm, that down right. going but it, forward? But it did turn out, that's true, but it turned out that legally there's still um, Congress, there's a law that allows Medicaid patients to basically have free choice of providers. I mean, there's managed care, but they couldn't use the the, the simple majority in the Senate mm-hmm. to basically change that law. They would have needed 60 votes, which they don't have. So Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood does continue. And there have been some lawsuits over the state efforts. I, I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the status is of, of those. I think Planned Parenthood prevailed in the majority, but I don't know if they're all settled at this point. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's still a couple that are out there because states have tried to, to do that, too. And it but... certainly cost Planned Parenthood legal, in terms of their legal fees with all this going on. Yeah. That's right. Well, Ohio did successfully strip Planned Parenthood of um, some state public right. money for like sex ed and other Yes, but that was Medicaid. But that's not Medicaid, right. exactly. And yep. there have been a number of states, as mm-hmm. Stephanie points out, that have tried to do that. So so this fight still goes on. I just want to make sure that people realize that Planned Parenthood dropping out of the Title X program is Doesn't not the same. Doesn't right. right. them. Yes. The way that taking them out of, you know, forbidding them from serving Medicaid patients would. All right, well, let's move on. August was also a busy month on the opioid litigation front. First, a judge in Oklahoma ruled that Johnson & Johnson must pay $572 million to the state for its part in starting and feeding the opioid epidemic there. It's significant because it's the first suit holding drug makers accountable for their part in the epidemic. But while that sounds like a lot of money, uh, it turns out the state was asking for $17.5 billion. So what is the fact that they got a ruling but it wasn't a whole lot of money or wasn't anywhere near what they were asking for suggest about the coming litigation, which is there's a multi-state trial that I think starts later this month. Well, my, I mean, my understanding was the amount of money they were asking for is looking at, you know, all that it would take in order to provide for treatment over the course of time for so many people who've become, you know, hooked on first, you know, these prescription painkillers and then on, on drugs like heroin and fentanyl. And, um, you know, there is talk right now of <laughs> Purdue declaring bankruptcy, knocking the Sacklers who own the com- who, you know, own a share in the company off of um the plans and then basically settling for remind me of the amount was it 12 12 billion that's being considered something, something, something like in that. the billions. Yeah. So they are kind of in discussions about, you know, moving ahead with moving along with this. Yeah, so so obviously the fact that there was a there was a verdict in I mean obviously this is just we were just talking about appeals courts and lower mm-hmm. courts this is a this is the the lower court already so it, it could be appealed but the idea that there was a verdict and it was for a significant amount of money if not what they were asking I mean does that sort of change what the the legal outlook is for for this whole fight I you know I can't help but think back to the fights over tobacco in the late 1990s which went pretty much this same way you had the state attorneys general um, fight basically saying that you know tobacco, 
caused illnesses are costing states money, mostly through Medicaid, but not exclusively. And eventually Congress got involved and there was there were lawsuits and settlements. Are we kind of looking at the same thing here on the opioid front? It looks like it. And I thought it was interesting that after the lower court judgment and the lower penalty than was expected and asked for, um, the companies, the Johnson Johnson stock prices went went way up because it was a lot. <laughs> they thought they would get dinged a lot more than they actually did. And so um, whether this, you know, turns out to be more of a cost of doing business than a genuine, you know, punishment and deterrent for future wrongdoing remains to be seen. Also, I think one thing that's going to be interesting to watch is what happens with the settlement funds. There's already some some squabbling over that. And, you know, the question is going to be how much of that does go into helping communities that have been grappling with the opioid epidemic. Um you see the the money that you know the Trump administration just doled out in grants from the congressional appropriation, and and this could obviously uh, help a number of those states. But it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. And this is actually a topic the candidates on the Democratic side have talked about a lot. Um, they think that um, the federal government should pump. I mean, there are several candidates who've, who've said $100 billion over 10 years. And then they've also said that it's time to hold drug companies more accountable. They think that people should essentially have to go to prison for what happened um, with the opioid epidemic. So we're hearing a lot about that from candidates. It's not an issue that's going to go away quickly um, at all. It's still very much a crisis, a public health crisis in this country. And it's part of the whole, I think, continuing um, use of pharma as a punching bag. I think mm-hmm. you're seeing... A, a real kind of vitriol that's that shifted to toward pharma at this point. Although to what you were saying about how the money is going to get used, it's worth remembering that a lot there was enormous amounts of money that came through in the tobacco settlement, and states used a lot of that money for things that were not public health related. There mm-hmm. were big fights. There were organizations who basically only were in existence to try and document how states were using the money. And you know right. there were a lot of roads that got paved using that <laughs> tobacco settlement money. Um, so there were there were some states that I mean most states used at least some of it for public health, but not most of it. And mm. you know you have to wonder that was an important health issue, but this is as we pointed out a public health crisis. So I mean maybe there'll be more of an incentive to use the money for for this. But also you know it's difficult to it, it, this is hard. It's as we've also talked about here. It's not just money, um, right? That and, right that fueling the opioid. I mean, not just money. Can You can't just can't throw, money throw money at, at it and solve yeah. it. Yeah. Right. It's not like medical debt where you can right. give somebody money and the debt will go away. It's right. A, I mean, if you don't bigger... get people an appropriate treatment where mm-hmm. they're getting medication to help, then, um, you know, they can fall back into addiction. They can, you know, be in recovery for years and then, you know, use the drug again and then die. So it's just one of those things that's really, really complicated and hard and, su- and such an individual... Um, experience with addiction and the way that, you know, people, I mean, I've known people who have been in recovery, did everything they were supposed to do, but the drugs that had such a toll on their bodies over time that they later died in their sleep without even using drugs. Mm. So it really damages the body over time. All right. Well, speaking of things that are bad for your health, we have talked a lot over the past year about the FDA's balancing act with e-cigarettes, particularly Juul, which has gotten so popular among teenagers. The FDA has wanted to keep vaping products away from those who are underage, but held out hope that uh, the products would be safer for adults who are already smokers as maybe sort of a better alternative. Now with reports about serious illnesses associated with vaping and at least two deaths, as far as I can tell, what do we think about, will that shift the balance? We haven't really heard very much from the FDA on what they're thinking about this. I, you know, I think there's some interesting elements here. On one hand, it's still it's still not 
exactly known what's causing these, and there's like a growing sense that this may be some of the bootleg, um, especially THC products. Uh, so that could potentially hobble any efforts to further uh, on the regulation front for e-vaping if, if kind of that turns out to be the case. And you know, don't forget, I do think that there's some signs that the Trump administration has some some ties with Juul in terms of the individuals who have left to go to mm-hmm. Juul. And I don't know how that I, I just don't know how that plays out or what's going on behind the scenes there. Uh, so I think it, it's it's too early to know, but it's a very provocative question. And you do see states already mm-hmm. stepping up and saying, OK, this is our opportunity to really go where we've wanted to go on this. Yes, Michigan this week banned yes, correct. flavored vaping um, yeah. products. Uh, I guess the first state to do that. Right. This is two different trends that they're trying to tackle. I mean, the trend of companies like Juul, but many others making products specifically designed to appeal to younger folks and marketing them towards younger folks with the flavors and such. Um, And then now there's this new mysterious lung illness epidemic. Um, So I I think those might be related. They might not be related. They might be two different things, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, So I I think there's just efforts on on both fronts happening right now. And also, we don't have a a new... uh, an official head of the FDA Correct. since yeah. Scott Gottlieb Like many agencies. Down. Yes, that's true. Well, didn't Trump <laughs> say Stephanie, he... didn't the Wall Street Journal yeah. have a piece out this we morning? We did, about yes. Who yes. the frontrunner is? Yes, we did. So... Is the front, I thought the front runner was the incumbent, was the acting, isn't it? Is it you'll, not? You'll have to read. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but that is, you know, this is an issue. Scott Gottlieb, when he was there, when he was the, you know, approved head of the FDA, the Senate confirmed head of the FDA, was very outspoken on mm-hmm. this. I mean, and was really on top of it. And, you know, the, the problem, I mean, I think last I saw there was sort of a push to appoint Ned Sharpless, who's the, the fill-in at the moment, the acting FDA administrator, um, was to, to make him the permanent FDA administrator because he can only stay until November. Um, Although Trump said what was in the last couple of weeks that he likes having acting people in these positions because he can basically hire and fire them at will, which is true. (laughs) Is that different from what he does for non-acting? Yeah, probably not. That's a good point. (laughs) Well, I think he might not like the uh, difficult confirmation process for mm. for some of them. Yes, and the FDA has always been sort of one of those sort yeah. of fraught yeah. confirmation mm-hmm. processes in the Senate. All right, well, we will see how that plays out. Finally this week, a health-related immigration story. So while the administration didn't formally announce any changes, families of kids and in some cases adults who are here in the U.S. to get life-saving medical care started getting letters in the past couple of weeks telling them they had to leave the country within 33 days. Now, in some cases, this would actually mean certain death because the care that their patients are getting here isn't available in their home country. Um, As the publicity about the story grew over the past 10 days or so, the administration announced it would, quote, complete the caseload that was pending August 7th, which might or might not mean that the families who got the letters saying they had to get out could stay. Do we have any idea what this policy is and whether it's really been canceled or not? So my understanding was that they were going to pass these these sort of medical appeals onto Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, which is the agency that is also, you know, responsible for deportations in some cases. So I think that probably, uh, you know, caused a lot of fear that, you know, that would result in, you know, 
the agency getting access to their information and then causing them to, you know, go elsewhere. So there seems to have been a little bit of confusion about that as to, you know, shifting the responsibilities over to one agency or another. Um, But I mean, as you mentioned, too, if people thought they had to go back to the countries where they had been living, you know, there, there are cases where their livelihoods were literally at stake because they needed the the provisions that they had, um, the medical provisions they had here in the U.S. So um, it really exploded. It was something people were very upset about. And so the Trump administration kind of stepped back and said, well, OK, we'll just, you it, know, It's the well, OK it part that, <laughs> right. that seems a little odd. It right. seems like the whole thing has been very confusing. How it happened, the people got letters without knowing what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like and it's with, been... with no, and the letters had no sort of, here's how you can appeal this. I right. mean, there was no sort of due process attached to this. Um, it, it, it seemed like it was sort of a blanket. We're going to get rid of every, I guess these are all sort of, quote unquote, deferred action, sort mm-hmm. of people who are not here on, you know, People who are here on sort of some special provision that's not just the typical visa or green card, um, and I and that you know so we're wiping away all of those programs that mentioned until people started talking about it. But I guess it bears watching to see if they follow through or what happens to these families. It's and I imagine if the administration did follow through and move to deport folks, that there would be legal action, um, potentially congressional action. And we're out already seeing some press releases from members of Congress and calls for, you know, hearings on this. And so, um, I, yeah, but I think everybody is just as confused as we are right now. Congress is going to have a lot to do when it comes back. And not very much time to do it. Not very much time <laughs> yeah. to do it, which is next week's discussion. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Rachel Bluth, and then we will come back and do our extra credits for the week. <laughs> We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Rachel Bluth, who wrote the current Bill of the Month. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Julie. So this month's patient appeared to do everything right before an elective surgery and still got billed more than he was expecting. Tell us who he is and how he prepared financially for his procedure. Yeah, Wolfgang Balzer is a 40-year-old dad and engineer from Wethersfield, Connecticut, and he really did a lot of planning and budgeting for his hernia repair surgery. Him and his wife, Farron, waited until she'd had the couple's second baby in early 2018, so their deductible was reached. They'd have minimal out-of-pocket expenses, so there was planning on that end. Then when Hartford Hospital called to say you should pay for half of your hernia repair surgery up front, it sort of made them realize, oh, there are estimates available. We should call around and find out how much this is going to cost. So not only did they call the hospital, but they called the surgeon and they called the anesthesiologist, who they didn't hear back from. But but at least they knew to call the anesthesiologist. Exactly. Well, Farron's a, a physical therapist, so she's familiar with the healthcare system. And she knew that there'd be a lot of a lot of different people billing them. So they called around and they got estimates so they could budget and, and plan for the hernia repair surgery, which went off without a hitch, wasn't a problem. That's right. So they did they did everything right. They planned. He went in, had his hernia repaired, everything okay medically. And then, as we say, the bill came. And it was not what they had been led to expect, right? No. So overall, the bill for the hospital was about 51% more than what they were expecting. And the bill from the surgeon was more than double. They never got an estimate from the anesthesiologist. So that was just what it was. So overall, they were billed for over $2,300, which is a lot more than the $1,400 they were expecting to pay. Basically, it was a computer error. 
how they generate the bills is their electronic medical records spits out an average of what other hernia repair surgeries have cost. And because it was a relatively new system, there weren't a lot of patients loaded in and the estimate was inaccurate and it ended up costing about $800 more than they thought it was going to cost. So they said that's that's the reason it was so inaccurate. But not, didn't they originally say that, you know, it could be more complicated or that and yet he had no complications? No complications. He went home that day. So the increased cost wasn't for any medical reason. He was totally fine. No complications. So what did he do about the extra amount that he was billed and how much did they end up paying? Well, the first thing he did, which is probably the first thing everyone should do when they get a bill like this, is to start calling. He uh, he actually got this bill on Christmas Eve day. So, uh, you know, he called the hospital billing department. He called his insurer, Cigna. He called the integrity department, which opened up a an investigation. Um, the integrity the department at the hospital. At the hospital, yeah. And he made dozens of calls to all sorts of people. Uh Ultimately, because he was calling so much and because he called us and we started calling so much, the hospital kind of zeroed out his bill and they called it an administrative write-off and said he didn't have to pay anything more than the $700 that he originally paid when before the surgery when they asked him for a down payment. So he Plus all, what his insurer had paid. Right. Plus what, right, what Cigna had paid. His, his portion of the bill was only 20% of that anyway. So it was a lot more. Uh, he was actually really expecting Cigna to, to fight a lot harder. Um, he's like, you know, you guys are the ones who are paying for most of this hospital bill. Don't you want to fight this? But they were like, nope, just paid it. And, and what happened with the doctors? Stuff like this isn't really about the doctors. It's about the hospital. It's about the billing department. I'm sure the doctors got paid, um, but the billing department didn't want to deal with this anymore. So they zeroed out his bill. So the moral of the story is that doing your homework might not be enough. Um, what should patients do if they know they're facing a potentially expensive medical encounter beyond call your uh, friendly local reporter? <laughs> well, you should still always do your homework. It'll at least give you a good picture of what you can maybe hope to expect. When you call a hospital, if, if you can, you know, obviously, if this is an emergency situation, you're kind of stuck with it. But if you do have time before a medical procedure to call the hospital, ask them for an all-in estimate so that you're not just getting what the hospital will charge. You're not just getting what the surgeon will charge. Really ask for uh, a quote from anyone who might be seeing you, especially take into account that a lot of specialty physicians like anesthesiologists might not be in network. So make an extra point of, of calling about that. But at the end of the day, most of the time, these, these estimates will not be binding. So know that it is kind of, it is a little fuzzy. Get it in writing and you can use that later to negotiate down your bill when it's probably more than you expected. But bottom line, it's not like getting an addition on your house or a mortgage or things where people give you estimates and they generally have to hew to them. Absolutely not. No. Healthcare, uh, as we see in a lot of instances, it's really not like purchasing any other good or service. There's nothing keeping the providers to this estimate. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really just a good guess. And the, the benefit of having it is helping you fight it later on the other end. Well, we will keep at it. Um, thank you very much, Rachel Bluth. Thanks, Julie. We are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. 
Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Alice, why don't you start this week? Sure. So uh, I chose one of a couple of the healthcare related pieces that were included in the New York Times Magazine's very impressive 1619 project, which is about the 400th Uh, anniversary of the introduction of slavery into the United States and how that has affected the whole history of our country in many ways up till today. So this is a piece by Janine Interlandi that is called Why Doesn't the United States Have Universal Health Care? The answer has everything to do with race. And it just traces how Ever since the end of the Civil War, there have been efforts to stop the introduction of a comprehensive public health program that would be open to everyone of all races. And I thought it was really interesting. They were quoting some folks at the time who were arguing against this, um, arguing against providing uh, public medical care to um, um, formerly enslaved people. And it sounded pretty familiar to some of the rhetoric we're hearing today. You know, if we give people this free health care... They'll be lazy, they won't work, they'll be complacent, they'll be dependent on the government. It seems like some of the things you hear arguing against Medicaid expansion today in some states. um, There are no new arguments. No, no. Um, It was really well done, though. I mean, it was you you read it through to the end and you almost want to read more. Absolutely. So interesting. Absolutely. And and another trend, which also reminded me of the Medicaid expansion fight, was just the way um, this was Uh, a comprehensive national system was defeated over and over was this, we need to give states the power to decide on this. And so states were able to direct their funding where they wanted, and states were able to say no to Medicaid expansion much more recently. But um, um, it was talking about how a full national program has been the only way to desegregate health care. And until Medicare came into effect in the 60s, hospitals were very, very segregated and separate and not equal. The hospitals for uh, white people were much better and better funded. And then with the introduction of Medicare and every hospital had to take Medicare. And that was the the first time that that desegregation could happen. Um, But of course, that only applies to some people. So I found this very compelling. Stephanie. Uh, I have a story in The Atlantic by uh, Ronald Brownstein uh, about uh, – it's called L.A.'s Healthcare Reform is a Lesson for Democrats. It's a, it's an interesting story. It looks at um, L.A. and how they – as part of their Medicaid and switch to managed care, they allowed uh, sort of these state the, – these uh, county associations, if I have that right, to embark upon uh, basically what is kind of like a public option um, and offer, offer it uh, on the market and – I'm probably not getting the actual specifics of it quite right. It's worth reading. But it was what was most inter- interesting about the story wasn't how it was set up, but kind of the impact. And in that case, they found that it it you know, did um, help in terms of some lower costs, but it didn't really have the major huge impacts that you that could come with a more robust option in the state. And one thing I also found really interesting is that how much this public option uh, focus was also on preventive care and um, – unusual things such as stress relief and yoga. I just found that what they ended up focusing on in some ways was very LA. Yes. (laughs) Very LA. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good read. Kimberly. 
Um, I picked a story by German Lopez uh, from Vox. She spent more than 110000 on drug rehab. Her son still died. Um, it's a heartbreaking story. And one of the things I really want to note is that um, he is actually collecting stories from uh, other families. So um, if this has happened to you or someone you know, um, spread the word because um, there's certainly a lot more reporting and information that needs to be gained about the treatment facilities that are um, out there and you know supposedly are supposed to help you get past opioid addiction but aren't always effective and aren't always using the best medical evidence. So basically Vox having now crowdsourced the whole uh, uh, emergency room bill is going to start crowdsourcing rehab bills. That's essentially what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So the the next big Vox health project. There have been huge problems with the rehab. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. 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 Oh, it's definitely a project worth doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm looking forward to seeing what they get. Um, Well, mine is actually two stories from my KHN colleague, Sarah Varney, about about how opioid makers are seeking a profitable new market in India, both by working to change the culture of pain in that country, as well as the laws that have tried to prevent opioid epidemics, like the one the U.S. is facing now. And what really struck me in reading these stories is how similar this was. We were talking about the tobacco settlements earlier, how similar this is to what tobacco makers did, you know, in yeah, the, in the yeah. 80s and 90s when Same regulations template. were being clamped down in the U.S., they started looking overseas. And this seems to be sort of the same trend by opioid makers. It's a, They're both really excellent stories and you should read them. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Steph Armor One. At Leonard KL. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.